Welcome back to the Girls Talk Ag podcast, Plowing Through the Manure Online. Um, This week, we are going to discuss something that could uh, ruffle some feathers, Um, which, I mean, haven't we every week? So I guess, yay, welcome to our podcast. We're here to get in your face about stuff. Um, We want to talk about what's going on in the the dairy industry. There seems to be a lot of misconceptions, um, a lot of, of... rumors and some some anger that may be misdirected and things of that nature. Um, so to this week's uh, a podcast is titled, What Would Brian Boitano Do? And for those of you who get the reference, thank you. We love you. For those of you that don't, get a little joy in your life and go watch the South Park movie. Uh, if you're easily offended, I don't even know why you're listening to us because you're easily <laughs> offended. But uh, this week I have my partners in crime back with me. I have Jen Campbell. Good morning. Say hi to your adoring fans, Jen. And I have Karen Corrigan. Hello, hello, hello. And uh, yeah, so we're going to start talking um, about what's going on with uh, uh, the Canadian dairy imports and, and kind of give some background into that story and, and really kind of work our way towards discussing contract growing and uh, what it means for a farmer. Again, I want to remind you that we are not the experts in everything. So just because we have a podcast with our, our name on it does not mean that we're here to um be the expert and and final opinion um although we do kind of take our time to to get a little educated on the subjects we're going to discuss uh we open this up this is made for conversation or to kind of get some conversation started so for those of you who are in this industry or the industries that we talk about today if you have some things that you want to um discuss with us or or educate us on after you listen uh, please do. We are not uh, thin-skinned, and we don't take offense to to feedback there. So, um, so basically, background story on on what we're talking about here for those of you who haven't haven't been listening or or maybe aren't aware. Uh, at the start of the the month here, about seventy five farmers in Wisconsin dairy dairy farmers in Wisconsin got notification um, from their milk buyer, uh, Grasslands, that they were no longer going to be taking the milk from the farmers um, who were contracted to to produce for this company. I um, believe they, there were also some growers in New York and Minnesota involved, too. Yes. Yep. Wisconsin, Minnesota is Grasslands, and then it's Cayuga, uh, Cayuga, um, Cayuga, uh, Cayuga milk ingredients in New York. So, um, between grasslands and, uh, the Cayuga milk ingredients, um, we saw some dairymen or dairy farmers there, um, basically getting told that they had about 30 days to find a new buyer for their milk. And this, uh, conversation began or, or the, the news kind of rumbled out that it was because of Canada. And a lot of people were really kind of, uh, in the mindset, you know, what's Canada doing um, and why, and uh, really kind of looked in that direction that, you know, suddenly Canada was was in the wrong in this. And and even I've read stories now where Canada has imposed tariffs or something of that nature is, is what the bottom line is. And, and that's not the case. Um, basically, what's happened is, is the Ontario farmers uh, a year ago uh, introduced this new class of milk. So what we'd been doing, the Canadian cheesemakers had been importing um, basically this ultra-filtered milk product. I mean, basically the milk was was filtered over and over and over again until it was down to a baseline protein product. And this protein product was used in cheese specifically. It was a, a protein liquid liquid concentrate used to make cheese. 
And we were exporting big time this this product. Um, in fact, I believe Grasslands, 75% um, of their processing was this ultra-filtered milk. Um, well, the Canadian dairy farmers realized this. Um, we'd seen a substantial growth in uh, dairy imports into to Canada. Basically, in 2016, uh, dairy imports from the U.S. into Canada were about $98 million worth or up nearly 17% from the year prior. Um, and so a lot of farmers were like, what are we doing? Why are we not um, selling this class of milk? It was a, a cheaper product or a cheaper class of milk, et cetera, et cetera. So the Ontario government approved um, this class six and class seven um, milk product or or basically allowed the the Ontario farmer uh, to or the Ontario milk processor to introduce this ultra filtered protein concentrate. And of course, you know, buying something just up the road versus importing it um, was much cheaper. And the the Canadian cheesemakers in Ontario started leaning in that direction. And because the Ontario dairy farmers were able to produce this much cheaper um, product, we saw um, the other provinces in Canada follow suit. So basically where we're at right now is um, the market structure itself has changed and they're no longer importing this milk product. And uh, here we sit. So how'd I do on explaining that, girls? It's kind of a rough, it's a bumpy thing. I learned because I really had no clue. I still <laughs> Sounds have. Sounds good I mean, to me. But yeah. let's interject here with the first thing is we are very sympathetic with those dairy farmers who no longer have anywhere to sell, send their milk at the moment. Yeah. Because yeah, we know exactly. that sucks. <laughs> yeah. I, I, that, as a producer, that's the first thing that occurred to me. I, I, yeah. I can't even imagine. How horrifying. Yeah. And um, there are dairy dairy farms up there now that are, are saying that because of this, unless they do find a new buyer, um, I believe there was a fifth or sixth generation one I read about in Wisconsin that, you know, they may no longer um, have a dairy. And so this is kind of a double whammy in the sense that if everyone's liquidating their, their heifers in, in Wisconsin and they're no longer milking, the value of your, your heifers is, is basically non-existent as well. So not only are you looking at shutting down and, and moving your cattle out, you're also looking at taking practically nothing for these cattle that, you know, in some cases, some of these guys have, have raised from birth. So, yeah, it, it breaks my heart. I mean, it, it really does. Um, the struggle I have right now or the thing that I want to make sure of is is that, you know, it's it's expressed or that we explain um, that Canada's really working within a certain extent of their free market. Um, they do have a supply management program up there that's, that's interesting. Um, and that is the thing that some folks are pointing at saying that the the world trade organization should be looking at as a, a faulty um competitor i guess you could say um i don't know karen you've done quite a bit you guys both did quite a bit of research going into this um what would you like to add on the the background uh do you have anything that that you'd like to, well, to it add appears as if canada limits the amount of milk they produce whereas the u.s doesn't and neither do some other countries and so that's kind of what's contributing to the glut of milk i guess yeah. you'd say um yeah. i just threw my head what keeps <laughs> what i keep thinking is cartman yelling blame canada i know that's how i feel too <laughs> like when all and else I, goes i back, think that's just... what everyone did they did they did and, yeah 
And so that's but it's where a lot more complicated than just blaming Canada. And oh, even I, President I, Trump tried blamed Canada. Yes, on when Kenosha. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't I wonder I just don't feel like even at this point if either side if anybody knows what's going on somebody has to know but who I have no clue right now. You mean on the the uh what the the policy is or what we're doing? That all, all of it to be honest with you what what happened is anybody being honest on either side have we heard the entire story cuz it doesn't feel like it to me. You know, I I have to tell you, I I don't one hundred percent think I, I, and I don't want to lose my American card here. You know, my well, and I don't state. either. Um, Me either. But I, right, I'm gonna have to go to Canada and start chugging maple syrup, which doesn't sound that bad, but. To me, I, I feel like it's it's been our side of the argument, um, you know, specifically the two companies, the two processors. Uh, you know, this wasn't a new development. Um, and so to, to send out a letter April 1st stating that these farmers have 30 days to find a new milk processor, to me, I think is, is bullshit. Um, yeah, I agree. How it went down was not uh, not kosher, in my opinion. I mean, and, and, and I, I guess, yeah, I guess that's part of my point. So, yeah. Who who just says, oh, this just happened today. Here's your letter. You have 30 days that I don't which, know. I mean, I've read statements that uh, from Grasslands and, and from that Cayuga that that say that they had basically two days of notice um, that the Canadian buyer kind of let them know that they were were supplied elsewhere. But they um, couldn't foresee, knowing that Canada added that class a year ago, that this was probably going to happen if the prices got more competitive in Canada. Well, that's my argument on it. Is it's it's I'm a buyer, okay? So I mean, somebody I, is not on top of it here. Exactly, and that's the thing is is I buy grain, and I will tell you what: there have been times where I have paid for grain or I have bought grain, and I have turned around and discovered that the grain that I bought is not profitable at a resale value in the current market structure. Uh, last year I went on maternity leave and when I left basis was real strong on corn. So while I was gone, you know, we had target orders filling. I had customers selling grain to my assistant and I wasn't really paying attention to my position. When I got back basis had dropped 20 cents on corn because the market had rallied and it never came back. I lost 20 cents on every bushel, but I didn't sit down and say, well, sorry guys, I can't take that corn. You contracted to me at a higher value because I'm going to lose money. Because that's not how it works. But you we, had an actual contract, whereas I don't think anything was written in stone for these guys, which is very unfortunate. Yeah. I need I need to go back to the maternity leave thing in ag. That's a thing. <laughs> well, it wasn't in my book. Yeah. It I wasn't took in my book either. Three weeks off and a week is spent in the NICU with him with my laptop oh, doing well there you go and, okay yeah i mean we'll i have a pass emergency c-section that was very traumatic and i answered the phone to discuss herbicides the next day while i, I was just, sitting in the hospital bed yeah oh no. and we, we we paid cash for all three of our kids and the second one was born at 4 30 a.m and uh chris looked at the doctor at two o'clock that afternoon and said she looks good can i take them home and we walked out of the hospital Right, you cheapo, Chris. Yeah, way to go, Chris. Yeah, jackass. 
Um, okay, okay, back to dairy. Sorry. Back to where we're at here. But so yeah, so I was gone for a couple weeks, came back, and uh, here we sat. You know, I I had I took a loss on all of those bushels, and yeah, you know, Karen, I think you make a good point. I don't really know um, how these contracts are are set up. Um, In response to some of the questions that we asked, you know, one grower said that his processor had to give him three months notice, which that seems a lot more reasonable than 30 days to try and figure out something else. I mean, it still might be difficult, but, you know, 90 days is a lot, you know, easier to deal with than say 30 days. Yeah. Yeah. Especially in an area that's already over supplied, you know, to a certain extent, you've got, uh, and then some other growers, you know, they own part of their co-op, so they have a lot more say in what happens and what they produce. And so, you know, their risk is probably greater in the fact that they own part of it, but they also, you know, maybe have less risk in their actual production. Yeah. Maybe. I I don't know. I don't. And that's been the thing that's really kind of surprised me with this is the difference in, in um, relationships between buyers and processors. You know, I'd never really paid much attention. And in, in Michigan, we have the Michigan Milk Producers Association. Um, we were a part of that uh, because we did dairy for a short period of time on our farm, but I was too young to really know the inner workings of it. Um, and I still don't. I think it's a certain price is set for the um for the milk, the the MMPA members, which I think the majority of the state is is if you run a dairy, you're you're part of the MMPA. Um, they set the price and they handle selling to the processors, as far as I know, um, which is similar to what we've seen uh, in the potato industry there um, in the past. Is there's a, a certain potato industry and and they kind of broker the deals for you. I mean that's not how every single farm operates, of course, but. Um, that's what we've seen. So I was kind of surprised to see the the Wisconsin setup. And then when we asked on Twitter all of the different types of setups that we we see when it comes to this kind of specialty buying on the dairy side. Yeah, we don't in here in Illinois, we don't believe in a lot of livestock, so we have to look elsewhere. But, you know, the only dairy that I'm familiar with uses all of their 100 percent of their own milk to make their own cheese. And that's our local um, cheese you know, we have Rob Jersey cheese here on the north side of Bloomington, and they use 100% of their milk. Um, and they actually need more cows to bring in more milk um, as soon as they can expand to make more cheese because they have so much demand for their cheese. But obviously, that's not the case everywhere. So I mean, they I, are using 100% of their milk to make only cheese? And their own brand cheese, yes. Right. Oh, that's cool. That's like yeah, Fair Oaks, cheese. I think. Isn't Fair Oaks kind of that way too? Or no? Well, they uh, have they, milk, they milk have and milk. products. Yeah, they have milk and products as well as cheese. They have the best um, five-year-age sharp cheddar. Yeah, I haven't made it over there yet. I hope to, mm. but I buy their milk. Their oh. ice cream is delicious. For how much too. milk my three-year-old milk and cheese my three-year-old eats, you'd think that she could keep the entire dairy industry in business, but apparently not. That's I'm the my same kids way. Are that way. I love Fair Oaks milk. I yeah. do too. Um, and it's, I just love milk. And I am I a heathen. Too. I am a horrible, horrible person. And I'm not going to lie. I drink it straight from the gallon a lot. I hide it. Chris, Chris I don't says I drink more milk than a human person should be allowed. Really? Well, yeah. Obviously, he's not adult. paying attention to the a fact that we, we dumped like 43 million gallons last fall. So you've got to. Everyone needs pace. to drink more. Yeah, drink more, more milk. Drink more milk. 
Exactly. Do your part to make this better. Exactly. That's why. And I mean, so that comes down to that's the, the question that we have at this point in time, then is is Canada, you know, like I brought up early on is is the one thing that that some folks have been kind of complaining about with Canada is that they have a, a supply management um, program. So in theory, they do not produce more than they have demand for, which obviously that's not necessarily the case if they're importing you know, nearly $100 million worth of, of milk products, they, they apparently could step, wouldn't hurt to step up a little bit, but they're not exporting into the global market. So what Canada is saying is that because of their supply management um, program, they're really not competing with us, New Zealand, others, um, you know, and, and that we shouldn't, you know, we should be grateful somewhat that they're not trying to to be our competitor, even if they've cut back, you know, this significant amount of, of business with us. Um how much how much of the business with us what was it? What percentage? It was seventy five it, it was estimated at seventy five percent of their processing. Um I'm not one hundred percent sure you know what that was, but both companies claim that they will lose around $150 million with this market shift. So it's a significant amount, I guess, which seems odd to me because the numbers that I saw from the import-export structure wouldn't necessarily um, support that large of a loss. Just because, like I, I said earlier, I, I thought I had read that Canada had imported $98 million worth. So how they would lose $150 million is is kind of surprising to me, unless it was a projected amount of exports, or maybe I, I read it wrong. I don't... Karen, did you see any different numbers than that? I didn't. Dairy trade between Canada and the U.S. is important, and the sectorial trade balance massively favors the U.S. Am I reading the right place I for think you? so, yeah. Yeah, it, like... Um, at around five to one. one. Yeah. Uh, U.S. exports of milk protein substances, including... Dia filtered milk to Canada were ninety eight million in U.S. dollars in two thousand sixteen. Yeah, up from the thirty three million in two thousand eleven. Dairy imports into Canada from the U.S. were up eighty three million compared to two thousand fifteen. A significant year over year increase of around seventeen percent. Is that the right section? Yeah, yeah, that's what I was looking at. And so, you know, like I said, the the. Exports of milk protein substances to Canada were 98 million in 2016. And so with grasslands and Cayuga saying that they're going to lose 150 million, it kind of makes me wonder where the other 52 million is coming from, unless it was a projected increase. Um, And in that case, you'll have to ask why the hell were they expecting a projected increase when this change had taken place in the class structure anyway? A year ago. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'm not really 100% sure on that, where you're at from a, a loss. And, and you know, it is hard, but you, we always, in every industry, we run into um, competition when it comes to exports. And just because we run into competition when it comes to exports, as tempting as it is to scream that they're not playing fair, the reality is, is that every country has the ability to produce its own food source is supply. I mean, it's just the same as what we were talking and right. about. Yeah. It's the same as what we were talking about last week. I mean, we can't sit here and say that when it comes to country of origin labeling, we prefer to buy United States food and then think that Canada doesn't have the right or any other country doesn't have the right to do the same. I thought one of the funniest tweets was from Mark McLean, who's a Canadian farmer, and he said, can you really preach buy American, hire American, and then get mad at Canada for buying Canadian and hiring Canadian? 
You no. can't. And it's true, and we can't. I mean, every country wants to have its own level of patriotism, especially in this global market move that we're getting into. You know, and, and I understand a lot of folks will scream that Canada, you know, when it comes to their um, milk and there's one other product that they're very particular about supplying their own, but then they'll send us beef and lumber and other things. But we're sending them beef. And I mean, we don't have as much lumber to to export, you know, or we're not going to export it. You don't you, you don't sell ice to an Eskimo. You know what I mean? We're not going to sell trees to Canada like they're 95 percent. Yeah. I mean, it's it's one of those things. Their, their population, they were quick to point out, too, is they're not 100 percent certain as to why we would get so upset about this because their population is roughly the size of California. I mean, I think the reason we got upset is how fast this went down and how the dairy farmers got left in the dust. Oh, Had this yeah. been better thought out by Grassland or their buyer and given more warning, then I don't think this would have been the little fiasco that it has been this week. Well, and I, I think the letter that was put out kind of pointed that it was Canada's fault. The letter by who? Uh, Grasslands. Oh, I never yeah. did see well, of it. Of course, they don't want to blame themselves. Right. Yeah, I, t- I tell you what, when I was feeding hogs this morning, I, it, it kept occurring to me we had a load of uh, fat hogs put off this week because of uh, trouble at the Tyson plant in Logansport. So, you know, I can feed those hogs for another week. That's not a big deal. That's a load of milk and yeah. everyday milking. I, it was it as a producer. I'm just like I I'm stunned and I can't even fathom what that would feel like. Yeah. You can't tell the cows to hold it. Right. No. You can't. I mean, I can feed those hogs for another week. It's not, you know, it's going to cost me a little more, but I've still got those hogs to sell. Yeah. And I can yeah, sell them next week. Them in the ditch. Yeah. I, I didn't have to dump them. I, 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 feeding this morning, I was just like, it's, it's not even something I can imagine. Yeah. I always joke on market to market that you can't put cattle in a bin. You know, so if the price right. is cheap, you know, you can't you can't store them forever. But to wait a week or two um, or even, yeah, you know, it, you even know. a month. I mean, there was a, a point there when when cattle prices are down so low, you know, we were we're running in in nineteen hundred pound cattle was the, the average slaughter weight. That's ridiculous. I mean, but we were feeding them as long as we could possibly feed them before we had to ship them because no one wanted to recognize that hit. A dairy farmer doesn't have that opportunity because he basically has enough of a enough room um, in his tank for that day, maybe that milking two, even, depending two on... To, two to three milkings, depending on what your storage is, yeah. Yeah, and it has to and, stay and at a certain temperature, um, you know, and, and, uh, well, it's a perishable product where, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, cattle on hoof is, is perishable, but it's not, it doesn't, right. What I don't understand is for such an important commodity, how do we not have a better system? I don't know. I, don't I mean, how we're... do we not have, you know, processors that, you know, have to give them 90 days notice? I mean, how, how are we not protecting them more? Yeah. I mean, and I'm not saying subsidized and all of that stuff. I'm just saying, you know, professional courtesies here. How come we don't give them 90 days, you know, or how come that's not, you know, set in the industry standard, I guess. Yeah. What what percentage of milk processors or whatever you want to call them that buy milk don't have contracts with their buyers um, like Grasslands didn't? Oh, gosh, I don't know. I think most 
I don't know. We'd have to ask. Um, well, one of the dairy farmers said he doesn't have any agreement. It's just kind of a, you know, this is where we're bringing it until something changes. Yeah. I, like it's I said. To me, seems freaking scary. I know. Well, I, you know, I don't raise contract hogs, but I'm telling you right now, makes you think twice about it. I mean, I don't have a desire to do that, but, you know, hogs aren't near as perishable as milk. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I know um, I was talking to someone about it and, and basically um, they they determine their price like on Sunday nights going in. Oh. So it's it's the like whatever, yeah, whatever. whatever will be picked yeah, up pro- for those two weeks. I I know in the past, and and this is me speaking, you know, just based on, you know, what I've talked to with my producers or or friends who are dairy farmers in the past, and and they basically they'll ship the milk out, and then it, every two weeks they get a check, so they don't even know what the price of the product is they're shipping. Well, it's not even based on milk, is it? There, I believe so. I believe it's based on milk futures, less whatever. I mean, you're going to have probably a cash value. Um, I'm not. Yeah, I don't know. I, for some reason, I, you know, it, I don't think it's based on the price of liquid milk. Well, there's the different classes, too, I think. And then you have your different quality um, premiums and things of, of that side, I believe. So that's, I mean, this is something that we want our, our dairy farmer friends to to tell us about. Uh, I think you're right. I mean, it the the market itself is supposed to be set up to to help set prices. I mean, that's why you have the futures and and milks traded on the CME and and uh you know, all of that stuff, but when it comes down to it, um from a hedging standpoint, the farmer doesn't seem to have the ability to do the same things that you know, our row crop farmers will complain that they can't you know, oh, well, my basis stinks on soybeans. Well, at least you can lock in futures and have it be a real market. Or put it in the bin. Yeah. Sit on it forever. Build another bin. Something of that nature. So, you know, and this conversation kind of got us leaning towards other specialty crops or other specialty contracted crops out there, which, you know, sugar beets in particular. Um, Karen's had some real experience and we talked about uh, sugar beet sugar um, in last week's podcast. And so, Karen, you know, kind of fill us in a little bit on that side, because I think that's an important deal there, too, where we we do have a whole sector of agriculture that is somewhat reliant upon, you know, a, a, because for lack of a better term, gentlemen's agreement and, and marketing their crops. Well, with sugar beets, I mean, it's, I don't know, I would call it a cartel, but I don't want any hate mail. So let's pretend I didn't say that. (laughs) But basically, if you want to grow sugar beets, at least in the North Dakota, Minnesota area, you either have to own stock or rent stock for each acre that you put in. And then once you have that, you're only allowed to plant a certain amount. So you may have um, 100 shares and you can only plant 80%. So that means you can only plant 80 acres. And you, I think you only pay rent on what you actually plant. But then after that, depending on what the yields are, you know, the different facilities will only let you bring in a certain percentage. And then as it goes down and maybe they get lower, they'll let you bring in another, you know, one or 2% until they've, you know, got gotten a certain amount dug. And then... Um, you know, because the factories only run so many days a year and the sugar beets only store so long based on when they were taken out and how much sugar they have. So you're kind of limited on all of those. And then also, you know, 
the average sugar rate or the average sugar in, I guess, in the valley there determines, you know, if you're above or below that, whether, you know, your price is at what's projected or lower. So there's a whole bunch of different factors taken in. And I got kind of a short course from Dakota Farmer on Twitter this morning, Nathan. Um, So it's a little bit crazy. And his comment was, um, you have no idea how pretty darn easy it seems to raise corn and soybeans compared to sugar beets. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And they also have a lot of diseases that can be really devastating as far as, um, you know, they need to put on several fungicides and and whatnot. So they tie up a fair amount between, you know, the rent, the sugar contract, the fungicides and the inputs and the seed and all of that, that... um, I told them my, to figure this all out, you actually have, have to have a PhD because there's so many different things that you have to look at and you have to you know, look at how deep your nitrogen was and make sure that it runs out at the right time of the year so the sugar is at where you want it versus dropping lower and it just, wow. I'm glad that I only watch sugar beets from far, but they are really interesting. They are, yeah. And they're, um, they're very... I don't want to say detrimental to the soil, but they're like growing potatoes. I always, I always joke that, you know, potatoes, sugar beets, really any root crop. And maybe I'm wrong in that. You are the one, the agronomist person. I mean, they're just, they're rough on, on your, your ground, I think. Cause we grow quite a few in Michigan. Um, I am a corn and soybean agronomist. Right? I am a watcher of sugar beets and other specialty crops. Well, they're fun. Sugar beets are fun because they're harvested like potatoes. So we had a sugar beet grower in my backyard when I moved south. Um, So it was always fun. They were one of the first things that was always planted every year. And, uh, you know, one of the first things that was harvested kind of deal. And, and, uh, yeah, I mean, that's where we're at. Uh, Michigan sugar is very similar. Um, and, and it's out of my wheelhouse here, but there's been a lot of complaints on, uh, you know, I know for a while there, Michigan Sugar was losing an epic amount of money on the the product itself because the sugar prices had dropped so much. Um, you know, both well, it doesn't and help when all the like, wasn't it Hershey that said they were only going to sugar cane sugar? Yep. Which basically, I mean, there's some across the southern U.S., but not enough to you know feed everyone in their chocolate frenzy. Yeah. So obviously, then then it comes to that it's getting imported to be imported sugar cane and. I just don't understand how imported sugarcane is better than a GMO sugar beet from the U.S. I just, I don't get it. What is our, um, I know a sugarcane farmer down in Louisiana. What is our uh, um, percentage divide for sugarcane grown in the United States and and sugar beets? Uh -uh. Does anybody know? There's not that many acres across the southern U.S. that I know of. No, let Mm -hmm. me see. Right. So in... Okay, world sugar, this is, okay, let me see here. This is 2015. Uh, Florida produced around 17.6 million tons of sugar cane and is expected to produce the same thing in 2016, which is almost half of the country's total sugar cane production. Globally, world sugar production amounted to 175.1 million metric ton. So we grow about half the sugar cane we need. Yeah. And not enough. Some 900,000 acres of sugarcane is harvested yearly in the United States. Um, so instead wow. of importing that other half, why don't we just use sugar beets instead? Because we like Brazil. Brazil's the leading sugarcane producer worldwide. And that year, the nation, uh, in 2014, Brazil basically produced 
all of the world's sugar, 737 million metric ton. But what about buy American, hire American, Angie? Are you not listening to our president? (laughs) And that's the thing. That's what I said is, you know, we had our cool discussion last week and and we're kind of like, hey, I do like to buy American. And and everyone's like, yeah, me too. Um, But then all of a sudden we're like, you need to buy American too to every other country in the world. And that's not how free trade works. Yeah. Um, you know, and like I said last week, I mean, I don't have any issue buying something from Canada. I would treat that just like I would the U.S. I wouldn't even think twice about it. But yeah, and I don't and I don't have a hard time with the the Canadian dairy farmer. I do. I do feel very sorry for the the guys in Wisconsin and, and Minnesota and, and New York and everywhere because it's this is going to impact things. I mean, last fall alone, we dumped, like I said, 43 million gallons of, of milk nationally. I mean, just in, in a, a short period of time. It's happening everywhere. We're dumping milk. And, you know, so the thing that really kind of makes me scratch my head is um, we're dumping milk like gangbusters, but there's actually a, a 4,000 head dairy that's proposed for um, central Wisconsin. So we have 75 dairymen who cannot find a, a buyer of their milk, but we're going to add another 4,000 head to the, the state's production. You know, in Michigan, we just put in uh, a 1,500 head dairy north of, of my elevator and we're dumping milk. I mean, it it, it seems kind of counterintuitive to me um, to see these expansions, but I guess we're seeing it in hogs and, and everything. I mean, we, we have more corn than we can shake a stick at and we're going to you know, everyone wants to to continue to plant corn. So, are we our own worst enemy? Yes, <laughs> basically. I mean, no. I mean, I mean, we are. I mean, we're we're. Isn't that part of capitalism, though? We're 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 out for ourselves. I bet. I guess. Yeah. You know. Well, and uh, we're cutting we're cutting out farrowing here on our farm instead of building because it's. It works for us because there's just too many hogs right now. Yeah. Um, I would just as soon build, but there's no money in it. Yeah. Well, and I know I, you know, someone brought up at a good point last night, though, is the free market is not allowed to work if these groups are, um, if they're help, being help, helped or propped up by by banks, too. Is there a certain level where we're giving money or we're we're subsidizing or and I'm not I'm asking, you know, somewhat of a rhetorical question, but are we are we helping, you know, the the fact that you don't want to see people go out of business cuz god god forbid. You know what I mean? No one wants to see anyone run on hard times at all. But if no one ever runs on hard times, how does the market correct itself? Does it? Well, I think subsidies and all of that, that's a whole nother podcast. Oh god, yes. That's and I don't even want to do that podcast. I'm sick that day. <laughs> Because that's a lot. So basically what we're hoping is that those farmers get picked up by other processors and that everyone does their part and drinks more milk, eats more cheese, and other dairy products. Yeah. Right? And outside of that, I mean, Angie, really, what would Brian Boitano do? He... I can't even sing it. Blaine, what would Brian Boitano do if he were here right now? That's what... (laughs) You got it. Come on, sing it, Angie. Sing it. If he were here today... That's my favorite line. What would Brian Boitano do if he were here? I Now I can't even sing it, you guys. I had it earlier. I know it goes, he would kick an ass or two. That's what Brian Boitano would do. He'd also drink a gallon of milk. 
and eat a block eat of a cheese. Block of cheese. And eat a block of cheese. And eat cottage sure. cheese. What's your guys' opinion on cottage cheese? I love cottage cheese. Large, large curd. I like it. Do you? I like it. Carl yeah. thinks it's disgusting, but he grew up on a dairy farm, so maybe he knows something I don't want to know. Yeah. I don't. I can't think about what it is. Well, you, you just have to eat it. Yogurt, right? And, you know, it takes dairy to make ice cream. So if you're not all that fond of milk, just eat a bunch of ice cream. Do something. You need to share your part. And then, Do your part. You know, that's the unfortunate side of this whole entire thing right now. And, and that's the conversation that I've, I've had with, with several guys that, you know, when does the price get better? Well, the price gets better when we have a supply reduction or we have a demand increase. That's how fundamentally, you know, how a, a market works. You need to either reduce your available supply to make people pay more or you need to have people that want more and they'll pay more. Okay, so I, I'm going to ask that you all eat pork chops and ham while you drink your milk then. That's Carl drinks a glass of milk every night with dinner. Every night. Chad, like a Chad good a boy. Does he? I can't drink it with my dinner. It's more of like... Oh, no. I love it. Milk and pizza? Yum. Really? Oh, yes. Love milk and pizza. Milk goes with everything. You know, I I love milk, but I've never, I can't, I think it's because my grandparents used to be like, drink your milk. And I'd be like, I don't, I don't want milk with dinner. You know, have your milk with your goulash. Mm, that doesn't work for me. But. Oh, now see, that'd be good. But now with my brownies, beer. Beer with your brownies? You're weird. Oh, love beer and brownies. That is crazy and disgusting all at the same time. And Try not helping it. the dairy industry. Exactly. Come on, Jen. No, but <laughs> I had it with my pizza for lunch. So my Casey's pizza for lunch, I had milk. So I can have beer and brownies. I love milk. Later. I really do. So, well, anything you guys want to add? Um, you know, this is somewhat of a shorter version because there's so many unknowns to it. Um it, the one thing that we we really want to communicate is is a you know our heart breaks for the guys that have been dropped um you know i i really do feel bad and and i do think you know there's been a an idea proposed that uh the local processors each pick up five or six farms and uh you know, I think that's a great way to do it. I don't know if there's enough processing capacity, you know, or if, if after a while your logistics just don't make sense. You know, um, I I truly think that, that Grasslands or Cayuga or, or any of these groups should really kind of step up and, and uh, you know, I don't want to see any business take it on the chin. But if they do have contracts, if there's a solid significant contract and they're supposed to be taking this milk, I'd like, you know, I, I never want to see anyone bastardize a a contract verbal or otherwise. Um, so if there is something there that they can do, I'd like to see them do it. But you know, the main thing is overall, um, it's not necessarily Canada's fault. I mean, Canada's doing what they would do. They are not imposing an, uh, a tariff. So if anyone hears anything, you know, they're they're not impo- imposing a tariff. They've basically implemented a program to where they can supply their own. And I find it, I think it'll be interesting to see you know, as the market corrects itself and goes forward, you know, in the U.S., that that ultra filtered milk product is going to drop significantly in price. So you see a significant drop in price and all of a sudden the Canadian loony is stronger, you know, increasing Canada's buying power. <laughs> oh, that's just the dumbest name for money. I'm sorry. <laughs> 
All Canadians send hate mail to Plowwife. Plowwife. I'm sorry, but that's almost, it's a joke. It has to be a joke. Well, what do we have that's similar? I mean, there's all kinds of stupid stuff that you're like, really? Whose idea was that to call that? I guess. But in in Canadians' defense, I mean, if Americans had done something like this, we'd have been patting ourselves on the back for it. We do stuff like this all the time. I mean, right. We're kind of. Yeah, but we have Brian Boitano. Come on. That is true. And he would kick an ass or two. Because that's what Brian Boitano would do. <laughs> that's, what, it's, I, it's, that's what Trump wants to do, but I'm not so sure he's as um, as good as Brian Boitano it's was. It's a struggle, so. you know. But it's, Maybe we have our own loony. We do have our own loony. <laughs> Isn't his name Shark? That's what, Sorry. That, yeah. Yes. We, yes, very true. But, you know, so it, it just makes you wonder, the market is a, a free-flowing thing, and, and there could be a point in time where all of a sudden Grasslands is going to be begging these guys to produce this product because of currency conversion or just the market structure shift that takes place. And So would you work with them? Would you work with them again if you were these farmers without a well, contract? Well, it depends if they're able to stay in business or not. I mean, money talks and, and bullshit walks, so... I don't think anyone would say no if a buyer were to come forward and, and want to buy. I mean, eventually someone will yeah, sell. I would hope that next time around they would at least give them, an, you know, a standard 90-day notice at least. Yeah. Right. Something. Minimum. Just, you know, it makes you think, though, if, if the opportunity arises for you to stay in business and, I, I, you know, we can't offer you a contract, but we're willing to buy your milk for you to stay in business now. I don't know. Yeah. Tough call. Well, I mean, our, our cheese stocks are already exceptionally large, so it's really hard to to continue to buy because that's about the only thing that you can, um, I think, that we can take and, and make excess milk into that's um, somewhat non-perishable. Really? Can you have too much cheese? No, hell no. Like I said, I mean, okay, my favorite so cheddar is... Keep making cheese. Yeah, you age some right. cheddar five, five, six years, it gets this, like, crystallized thing to it and it's got a really extra sharp flavor oh my god it's so good send all aged cheddar properly aged not something that's been under your truck seat jen to uh right <laughs> to goddess yeah, of grain and, and hate mail her. for the loony yeah. to plow send the, the yeah. loony hate mail to jen and me all the cheese so and right. then i eat it on triscuits to help increase white wheat demand so that's what I do. But but no, I mean, from an overall standpoint, I guess the, the main thing that I we really wanted to get across here is, is you know, like I said, we, we feel for the, the farmers who have had issues. And we really want to kind of um, convey to the other farmers out there who are working with their buyers and things like that. You know, when you see stuff like this pop up, it's always in your best interest to make sure you double check the fine print on what you've got going on. Because um, it's really easy to assume that, oh, my buyer would never do that to me. I mean, that's you never assume it's going to happen to you. And that's when it, it comes down to, unfortunately, we're, we're in a world or we've always been. I mean, this isn't something new. You need to make sure from a legal standpoint, your butt's covered. And so if even if you aren't one that's been dropped, now is the time for you to to pay attention to what you've got going on and, and make sure that you are protected if something like this develops in your backyard. So, do you guys have anything else you'd like to add? No, I'm good. Karen, do you have anything else you want to add? Eat eat uh, sugar, beet sugar, drink your milk? Nope, that's See, it. When we grew up, we were poor. And so we would put, like, if we had rice with chop suey or whatever, we would put milk and sugar on rice. So that's like helping three struggling industries. So go out and get your rice and your milk and your sugar and uh, or 
uh, bread. My dad always told stories of bread. That, wouldn't that be just rice pudding? No, it's not made. It's just milk, sugar, and rice. <laughs> so you get to the end of the bowl and you'd have like the bottom of the bowl would be cold, coated in like sugar milk. Because you ate your rice. Huh. You could throw raisins in it. I guess I, it'd be rice pudding. My dad always ate milk toast. My dad always ate milk toast in the morning. Yeah, that's bread. It's like toast with milk on it and then Ugh. sugar sprinkled yeah. on it. I don't know. Eat that. I never yeah. did. Save Ugh. the U.S. Um, Rosie the Riveter style. Eat milk toast. So help your... Eat things from the depression. Yeah, you help your, your, yeah. your local farmer out, but... Well, as always, we appreciate you listening. Um, we definitely welcome your feedback. And uh, like we said, we do not. We do not. There you go, Jen. Don't not. Don't it. We do not proclaim to be experts on all topics that we discuss. We definitely just want to kind of share them with you, share our insights with you, and generate some conversation on what's going on in ag. So uh, definitely give us your thoughts on what we talked about this week and throw some ideas at us for uh, what you think we should be talking about um, in episodes down the line. And uh, yeah, thanks for listening and stuff. Have a great day.